son who's uh, two and three quarters old, and his name is Oliver. And in my home, uh, I also have a niece. So I call her niece. Her name is Hannah. Uh, she's sitting over there. Everyone can stare at her and make her feel awkward. <laughs> she will make me pay for it later when we get home. Um, and she's also a part of our family. Um, now, in my family, uh, this past Saturday, uh, my cousin Tappy, my real cousin Tappy, came and babysat because my wife and I celebrated our sixth year anniversary on that day, exactly one week ago. Yes. And when you have a kid, life changes. For the past two and three quarters years, I have not been able to go out to see a movie. I have not been able to go out and have dinner or a date. And so that is what my wife and I did on Saturday. We went to the movies, we went to a nice fancy restaurant, and had some good food. And now, the movie that we went to see uh, was called I Can Only Imagine. Uh, so have, have any of you seen it? I watched it. You watched it? You watched it. Okay. So I apologize if I'm going to ruin any of you. I'm going to use that as an example. I'm glad that most of you haven't, haven't seen it. I'm going to use only a part of it. Uh, we went to see that, and I'm going to share about that. And because I saw this movie, there's going to be a lot of imagining today. I'm going to ask you to imagine a lot of different things. Um, and we're going to go through those things when we get there. Now, uh, before we get into the meat of stuff here, let's read some verses. The first, you don't have to turn to them. If you don't need to, just listen to the verse as I say them. It speeds it up a little bit. Uh, the first verse I'm going to read to us is the theme verse, which you can probably just look at your books. It's Philippians 3, verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then the second verse that we're going to read right now is from Revelation uh, chapter 2, uh, verse 2, starting at 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So we're going to stop there for now. Okay, so let's pray real quickly um, before we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we can have together, that we can share together, that we can be uh, together with you. We thank you that your presence is here, and we ask that you would speak to our hearts today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we're going to talk about Ephesus today. We're going to talk about the Ephesians. And um, I don't know how much you know about them, so I'm just going to tell you a little bit about them. Now, Ephesus is kind of like New York. We're all in New York, so I pick New York. It's kind of like New York, or old school New York. Um, Ephesus is a gateway. Now, Ephesus laid on uh, the Roman highway, uh, and it was kind of like, you know, how you would get from west to east or east to west. And so if you did that, you would pass by Ephesus. Ephesus was a gateway. And New York, back in its day, uh, when we didn't have planes, you could fly wherever you wanted to go, you would stop in New York, likely, to go to anywhere else in America. So if you're going from Europe to America, you'd probably stop in New York and then move on. Just like if you're going from Europe to Asia, you would probably stop in Ephesus. And so Ephesus was a cool place. And if you stop someone in Ephesus and you ask them, hey, what's Ephesus like? Hey, Ephesian, what's Ephesus like? He or she may say something like this. We are cool. We're pretty advanced. We got a lot of good stuff going on here. All right, I got some tall buildings. I got whatever it is, right? 
I got some cool stuff going on here. And they would probably also say, we're pretty rich. We got a lot of money. We got Wall Street. They would probably say we're rich in trade. Because everyone is going by this city, this town, back and forth. So there's a lot of different things coming in and out, a lot of different goods you can get your hands on. And they would probably say, like is known of New York, it's a melting pot. It's full of culture, full of different people, different backgrounds, different dresses, different uh, uh, beliefs, different priorities. And so this is Ephesus. The other thing that's big about Ephesus is there was a temple there. Does anyone know the name of this temple? The temple of Ephesus. It was in Ephesus. <laughs> it's called the Temple of Artemis or Diana. Okay. Uh, now the Temple of Artemis. It is one of the seven wonders of the world. Okay, or the ancient world. I forgot because I think they came up with like a new list. And so it's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. All right. Across the rivers to the west, there is a soccer stadium called Red Bull Arena. It's home of the New York Red Bulls, even though they play in Jersey. And that stadium, built not too many years ago, seats 25,000 people. I've been there. It's really cool. It's really new. Everything is like fancy and clean, and you can really see the pitch really well. And so that place seated 25,000 people. Back in the day, the Temple of Artemis also sat 25,000 people or could. So if you can imagine building a structure like that back then, how amazing it would be. I'm going to do a little more. I've actually been to one of the seven wonders of the world. I have been to the Pyramids of Giza. All right? Now, it's really just a really big triangle, right? Like if you think about it. It's a big triangle. And so I went to see it. I thought it would be cool. And I went to the Pyramids of Giza. And I went up to the very first level, and already I was blown away. It's massive. It's gigantic. It was way beyond what I could imagine. Like Sandy was there, right? Yes. And it was just incredible. And really, no matter what I thought about it, I couldn't prepare myself for actually being there. And I think as best as you can, imagine what you want to imagine. Put yourself in the shoes of someone in Ephesus back in that time, way, way back in that time, and going to a structure that can hold 25,000 people built back then. I mean, it would blow you away. It would amaze you. And so this is Ephesus. This is the atmosphere of Ephesus. This is the culture of Ephesus. This is what Ephesus is like. And so again, what if you were a Christian in Ephesus at that time? This is what you have. This is what's surrounding you. You have temptations everywhere. You're going to be busy because life is going to be flying by. You're going to be trying to earn money, get as much of the pie as you can. Uh, you're going to be caught up in so many different things. And in that environment, there were these Ephesian Christians. Now, we read about them a bit, right? So we, they had good deeds. So maybe they took care of the poor or they took care of widows. Uh, maybe they spread the gospel, like Kelvin was saying, you know, and they were going to someone, they had someone in mind, and they would speak to them. Uh, it said that they were intolerant of apostles. So they were likely able to discern truth from lie, right from wrong. And if they could do that, 
in all likelihood, they probably knew the word really, really well. Because I can't imagine that you can tell right from wrong without some guidance. And they must have really knew their guide. They also persevered. So they suffered for the Lord's sake. And they bore testimony for the Lord, as Kelvin was saying, shining a light. Bore testimony for the Lord in a place, probably, that no one wanted to hear. And if you think of it, uh, does anyone here know what the NFL is? Yes, a lot of people, some people are not going to which is fine. I imagine you did. Uh, the NFL is the league in the United States that plays American football. And it's, uh, it has one famous person. He's not playing anymore. His name is Kurt Warner. So Kurt Warner, uh, he was quite good at what he did. Uh, he was a two-time NFL MVP. He won the Super Bowl and was voted MVP of that Super Bowl, I believe. And he was a Christian. Or he is a Christian, I should say. And so do you know what he would do? He would go to his teammates. Hey, Zach, come on over to my house. And Zach, being his teammate, would say, no. Hey, Faith, come on over to my house. No. No. Hey, what's your name? I don't see your name tag. Chris, hey Chris, come on over to my house. No. no. Why is everyone rejecting me? And it's because everyone knew that when you came to my house, Kurt Warner's house, I would talk about God. And I would tell you the gospel, I would share with you this most important thing in my life. And you would hear about it. Thank you. <laughs> so Kurt Warner was always getting rejected by his teammates. And this is probably what it was like to be a Christian in Ephesus, where no one cared about God. You had to stand up and be a light for God and get rejected a whole lot. So I'm going to ask for a consensus on what you think or how you think the Ephesians were doing. So I'm going to pick on, uh, I don't know, I wish I had a list of names. Uh, okay, Joshua. <laughs> I'm going to pick on Joshua. I'm going to use your name, okay? Now, I'm going to say this, and you're going to tell me, based on what I say about Joshua, what grade would you give him? All right, well, from A down to F, what grade would you give Joshua? Okay? You guys ready? All right, so, Joshua, I know your works. I know your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. Josh, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. This is Josh. What do we think? F? A? I hear an A. Anyone else? Like a B? You, a B? Okay, C plus. Okay, so anyone who gave less than an A is probably a pretty harsh grader, I think. I would give Josh an A. I would give myself an A. I would give myself an A minus because I want to be humble, so I'll give myself an A minus. All right? And so if, I, if you said this about anyone these days, if you said this about them, you would think pretty highly of them, Right? And then, if we keep reading, it says, 
But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Or in some translations, it says first love. What? And uh, verse 4, Revelations 2, verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, verse 5, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And so we see this example, this person living in Ephesus, dealing with everything they have to deal with, with a testimony of those things that I just told you, good deeds, intolerant of the false apostles. They persevered and still it looks like they may have gotten in an F. That doesn't seem to make sense. Why? And that's because of this thing called the lampstand that we found in verse 5. Now, I'm going to talk about that in a bit. And let's talk about this first love thing. This first love thing, what was it needed for? What was it crucial for? Right? It was not needed for salvation. We know, right? For salvation, to be saved, it's actually really simple. Because all the work was done. It's a gift, we didn't have to do a thing. All right, so for salvation, you don't need to have first love. So when he's talking to these Ephesians, why does he say they need first love? What, what do you need first love for? And so it talks later on about a lampstand. Now, what is a lampstand for? Anyone? A lamp? Yes. And what is that lamp for? A light. And that light, Kelvin reference is to be a testimony. Okay, let's talk about this light. This light, there's some verses in the Bible about the light. So one of them is, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So a light can help you see where you are, can help you see where you're going, and can help you get to your destination. Also in Psalm, verse 36, in thy, uh, chapter 36, verse 9, In thy light we see light. So because of light... You can see things, and you can see yourself. And if you're in a room, a dark room, and there was no light, and you lit a small candle, everyone could see it. I mean, it would go on forever, like it would feel like it. Okay? And so these are some characteristics of light, characteristics of a testimony. But it's not just a testimony, because the Ephesians did have a testimony, but it wasn't quite right. And we can do that sometimes. We sometimes can have a testimony of righteousness or justice. We can say, what you're doing there, that's not cool. That's wrong. We can say, that was messed up. I ain't going to associate with you. I'm going to judge you, and I'm going to say that was totally uncool, and I'm not going to talk to you forever. I just don't want to be around you. You can also puff yourself up. You can serve and serve or do things and do things. You can be uh, way above, just beyond everybody else. You can have a testimony of just being better. And that still wouldn't be what our Lord wants. And so first love is that ingredient that takes that testimony and makes it the life that God wants. Okay, we're going to talk about first love. We're going to talk about where it comes from. And so... Uh, there's a verse, 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. Uh, if you want to write it down, you can. And it says, we love because he first loved us. Okay? 
So there's the words first love in there. But I'm actually going to change it around a little bit. I'm going to say we love because he loved us first. I'm going to separate it a little bit. And the reason I'm doing that is because when we talk about first love, it's not just from a standpoint of time, like I did it first. Okay? When you talk about first love, as the Lord was talking about it, it's more like a quality of love, a kind of love, like an overwhelming love. Okay? It's a first love. Okay? And so I'm going to use that now instead in there. And we're going to say we first love because he first loved us first. We first loved because he first loved us first. Okay? And so where does it come from? Because it doesn't come from us. You're not born with it. You don't have it in the beginning. The only thing you really care about, and I can see that even in my little two-year-old, is usually yourself. I mean, sometimes he doesn't. But usually you're crying, you need milk. You know, when you're born, it's a lot of need. We first love because he first loved us first. Now, I'm going to express that to you. I'm going to give you an example of what that's like. Because like a lot of other things, when God asks something of you, he's already shown you how to do it. He's already given it to you. He's already given you that blueprint. And so if we talk about first love, it's kind of like this. In my home, and Hannah can testify to this, in my home, we eat dessert. And now, when I was by myself and single, I did not eat dessert. I only cared about the meat and the entree. I didn't care about the sweets afterwards. So I just ate steak or pork or whatever it is. My wife likes dessert. And after watching her eat dessert over and over again, I can't help it. I got to have some dessert too, right? And so I have dessert in my home now. And that's how come we have dessert there. And one of my favorites, one of my favorite desserts is this thing called a box. No. It's good that it doesn't. What is this? Mochi. Mochi. If you don't know what mochi is, mochi is, according to this description here, premium ice cream wrapped in sweet rice dough. And come on, that sounds pretty good. It's ice cream and carbs. Like, there's nothing not to like about it. It's so good. And so in my home, we sometimes have mochi. And this mochi is stored in our freezer, in our fridge. And unlike what my son probably thinks, it doesn't magically appear in the freezer one day where he can just pick from it. I, or my wife, had to get it from the store. And in this case, Costco. And then, to get it from the store, they wouldn't let me leave with it. I had to give them some money so that I can take it out of the store. Right? And to get that money, to get the mochi, to bring it home, I had to go to work. So I had to exchange my labor for salary, right? So here we go. I exchange, I get up in the morning, I exchange my labor for salary. I take that salary, I go to Costco. I get to Costco, I pick up the mochi. I bring the mochi to the cashier, I give them my hard-earned salary, I bring it home. I bring it home, I put it in the freezer. Right? That's how mochi gets into my house. And now we're at dinner. And when we finished, we've cleared our plates, and it's time for dessert. And we take out our mochi and we pick from our flavors, whoever likes. I get Hannah gets one, Stephanie, my wife, gets one, I get one, and my son gets one. Now, we all like mochi. I don't know if it's uh, how high it is on everyone's list, but it's definitely a dessert we all agree on. And so, and so I give mochi to my son, and sometimes I sit next to him, 
and I'm eating, and my son will start eating his mochi as well. And I like to think my son loves me. Um, I feel him pretty good most of the time. Um, and he will sometimes look up at me from his high chair. And he'll look at me, and he'll have his mochi in his hand, and he'll say, here. And he offers his mochi to me. Can I tell you how much I love that? Can I tell you? I can't do this in public, but I want to like, You know, I'm so happy when my son does that. It makes me ecstatic. And it's, it's a nipple piece of mochi, but I still want it. And I put my mouth on it, and I'll take a small little bite, and then he'll take a bite, and then he'll offer it to me again, and I feel it all over again. And it's such a good feeling. You know, when you love God, it's that same feeling. Because really, whose mochi is it? It's my mochi! I went to work for that mochi. I went to the store to get it. I paid for it. I brought it home. I put it in the freezer. I gave it to you and put it on your high chair. But when you give it to me, I don't know what happens. It's just, it's spectacular. And so that's what it's like to first love because he first loved you first. And if you and we can have that, just imagine how happy our Lord will be. And so... Let's talk about, uh, let me see here where I am. Let's talk about first love. Now, I'm going to talk about first love not just from a point of time. Like I said, we're talking about a type of love, a kind of love. Because this first love will allow us to have that lampstand that he's looking for. So the first thing I'm going to do is the obvious one. First love, first, in the point of first, in a point of time. In the point of, I went to uh, an amusement park, and I played one of those silly games, and I ended up winning a two-inch like stuffed animal or something, right? The first time I won something. Or you can think of it as your first car, right? The first time I purchased something. For me, that's a 2000 Honda Civic Coupe EX white. Uh, and that was my first car that I ever purchased, and I remember it. I remember who I bought it from, too, because they meet here. And other people, when you ask or think of first, like a really special first experience, some people might sit there and wonder or think about their first kiss. And so that's another thing that sometimes happens, that you associate with first. All right? And so, really, because something is first, it makes something special. Right? There's a value to something being first. Because I, I can remember, I'm not going to tell you, but I can remember my first kiss with my wife, but I don't really remember my, like, 800th kiss. To my wife, right? So that first one is the one that is special. And why? Why is that one special? It symbolizes your love. It's a little more than that. I mean, every kiss symbolizes that, right? But the reason that it's so special is because, what? It's the beginning of something, yes. It's the very first time you experience it, and so your hearts are really soft. It's really pure because you've never known anything like it before. It was a first experience, and, and, and at that experience, at that time, it was brand new, pure, uncontaminated. Nothing ever happened like that to you before. But over time, we start to think we've heard it before. We've seen it before. And I'm going to give you an example of what that is like. 
So I talked about watching the movie I Can Only Imagine. So we're going to talk about that movie a little bit. It was good. Now, part of that movie, please don't spoil it for anybody, part of that movie uh, is about Bart. Do you know Bart? Yeah. Who's Bart? Oh. He's a... He's a music writer. He's a music writer. He's, he's a, a singer he's of a, a band, a, right? He's the lead singer of Mercy, Mercy Me. Me. Yes, he's the lead singer of Mercy Me, and he also writes songs. This movie is about Bart Millard and his part of his life. I won't say his whole life. And part of the movie goes through his... Um, relationship with his father. And his relationship with his father wasn't one that you would want. His father really hurt him. He took away his hopes. He took away his joy sometimes. Bart was always trying to live up, kind of, or wanting to reach uh, recognition with his father. and never seemed to get there. He really hurt his confidence. And so if I gave you this scenario in a movie, what do you think will happen by the time you get to the end of the movie? What's going to happen between Bart and his dad? They're going to make up their relationship. They're going to be okay. They're going to reconcile, right? You have an answer too? Yeah. Is it the same thing? No. What is it? One of those lives died. What? One of those lives died. Okay. Well, that, 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 that's, that's not part of this right now. You can talk about it when you see it. Um, the other parts of the movie. But... If you watch any movie and you saw that there was a sour relationship and that was the relationship and the movie was about one of those characters, by the end of the movie, you would think everything was going to be hunky-dory and okay. Everything would be fine. Something would happen and they would reconcile. And so I'm watching this movie with my wife and I get to the part when they start reconciling. Sorry, I ruined it for you. They reconcile. Um... And it's pretty much exactly what I expect. I knew that it was going to happen. I knew that they were going to reconcile. I saw it coming. What I just did was I essentially finished the story before the story even finished. Right? I filled in all the blanks to the end of the story. And so when I got to it, I wasn't surprised. It didn't move me, let's say. Right? I knew it was coming in this story. Right? And that's what we do. Do you do that when you watch movies? You figure out what's going to happen. It happens, and then you're like, well, I knew that was going to happen, right? So, you've heard the story of the cross before. We all know the story of the cross. We all know what it's about. But you know, sometimes now, I think for a lot of us, the power of the cross to move us, it's like gone. And it's like faded away. We know the story of the cross. We see it to the end. And before the person even starts, finishes speaking about it, we know what they're going to say. And we're unmoved. We finish that movie. And we lose, sometimes, the ability to think God is awesome. Because we finish this. We've just taken the story of the cross. We've taken what they've done. And we made it something mundane and repetitive. And something common somehow. And expected. And so it's not special. So let's look at someone who uh, had a special experience. And what it was like for them. So there's this guy. He's a fisherman. And he was out fishing all night. And he didn't catch anything. So he comes back. And then... He uh, starts cleaning his nets, closing up his day. And then some guy comes around who's really good at speaking. And he's got a lot of people following him. And he's like, 
I need to get out on that lake. Can I use your boat to speak? So he does this. And of course, this is Jesus, and this is Peter that we're talking about right here. And Jesus says whatever he says. And at the end of it, he toes to Peter, and he says, Hey, Peter, fisherman, let down your net. Right? And Peter says, and I don't know what Jesus said, depart from, oh no, sorry. He said, Master, we toiled all night, but at your word, I will let down the nest. And he must have said something amazing because this is a fisherman listening to a carpenter, right? About fishing. All right? And so they caught so much fish, they had to get help. Yo, James! John! Help! All right? And so they come. And they fill up their boats, and it's more than they probably could have imagined. And so now they get back on shore. And what does Peter do? Well, this is an experience. He goes, and he falls before Jesus' feet. And he says, depart from me. I am a sinful man, O Lord. So Peter just went to Jesus, and this is never the right answer, right? And he said, Jesus, get away from me. <laughs> Yo, Jesus, get away from me. But you know what? If you put yourself in Peter's shoes, and you think about what just happened, you just said, depart from me. But I bet you, in your heart, what you're really saying is, I'm going to follow you the rest of my life. I don't want to be apart from you. That is what you really want. But you end up saying, depart from me. And why is that? Well, we talked about one of the verses about light showing, being able to show you yourself. And before Jesus, Peter saw that he was a sinner. And he just couldn't see himself being with Jesus. He couldn't see himself a sinner being in Jesus' presence, being around him. This guy... A carpenter who knew how to fish. But he couldn't imagine it. And I think sometimes we finish the story and we don't give Jesus a chance to amaze us so we can have that experience. I think sometimes we go to Jesus and we forget who we are and we forget who he is. So that when we have an opportunity to find him, to talk to him, it's somehow not special to us. Like, we forget that this is the guy who's God. This is the guy who gave up his life for me. This is the guy who can calm the storm. And to us, he's just a guy somehow. You know, Peter, when Jesus told Peter, let down your nets, Peter, and we think, I think we can all understand, if Peter, Peter said, I'm a fisherman. You're a carpenter. I did this all night already. I ain't going to get anything. There's no way I'm going to get anything. There's nothing left out there. I'm going back on shore. I'm going to go home. I'm done. My work is done. I'm not going back to work. Right? And that would be a very logical conclusion to the end of that story. But he was before Jesus, and he listened to him. And you know what? He gave Jesus a chance to amaze him. He gave Jesus a chance to blow his mind. And do something he could never imagine. And every time we have a chance to be before him, are we giving Jesus this chance? Or are we finishing the story? Are we saying, 
every Bible study, any devotion time for 15 minutes in the morning, if you can get up for it, you know, worship, the Lord's table, anything you can think of, serving food. Are you giving God a chance to amaze you? Or are you just finishing the story? So, you know, I watched the movie, I can only imagine. Everything happened as I expected. I mean, I didn't know the details. And I'll admit to you that I cried. I saw Bart and his dad making up, and I knew it was coming, and I couldn't not. Now, I wasn't bawling, okay, but I did shed some tears. And, you know, God has a way of taking something that was old and making it new again. You know, it is not gone forever. It can be brought back. My Lord gave me my son, and because of that relationship with him, I saw this in a whole new way. This thing that I knew was coming, this experience that I knew was there, this thing that I told myself I wasn't going to cry for, well, I couldn't help it. It was so fresh. And I think we have to let Jesus have a chance to amaze you. Okay, second quality of three. Um, First, what else can you think of for first? Well, the next more the next thing that we usually think of is a competition. Uh, we can think of uh, first place in whoever's going to win March Madness, right? So if there's four teams left, whoever's going to win? Villanova. 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 Or the underdog, Chicago, right? Or whoever it is. So there's first place in a competition, right? And what first place usually means a first place in the Olympics, right? Because that happened pretty recently, too. Um, or first place in the World Cup. Because uh, that's going to happen soon. That usually tells you how good something is, right? It's not longer, no longer about a point of time, but it tells you about the quality of something. That this thing is better than something else. This thing is more elite. It has uh, a more purity, a greater quality to it, right? And so we can think of first in that way. Yes. So here's another story. I am full of stories today. So there's a story of a father and a son. And the son goes to the father. And he says, Dad. And the dad says, Yes, son, what is it? And the son says, I'd like to ask you for something. Okay, that's pretty normal, right? And dad says, Sure, what would you like? And the son goes and says, Dad, you see... I'm waiting for you to die, and I can't wait anymore. What? Will you please go sell everything and give me my half or my inheritance? And so if you think about it, this is the story of the prodigal son. He wants his inheritance. And what happens next? The father's reaction, the master, is a story of first love. His love is of first place. In this scenario, you can imagine that uh, the master is there, and he's got servants working for him, and he's already sold his stuff, and he's given half to his son, and his son is ready to go, and the servants are probably, you know, there, probably with the father and his brother, and they're probably just pretending to do something that they can see what will happen. Like, I'm pretending to sweep the courtyard all like 80 of them or something. And then they're all waiting to see what's going to happen with the sun. And they see the sun starting to walk off into the horizon. And they're waiting. Is he going to turn around? 
What is he going to do? Is he coming back? And after some point, he disappears. You don't see him anymore. That's a little disturbing. Well, they're probably like, well, okay, he's gone. I guess I should go do what I really should be doing. So I'm going to go off and work. And some of them might even go to the master and say, hey, master, what are you doing? And he says, I'm going to wait right here. Because maybe he's going to turn around and come back. Maybe he's going to remember my first love for him. And he's going to turn around and come home. So we know the next day comes by. The son didn't come back. The servant's asked, hey, master, what are you doing standing there? I'm waiting for my son. And so on and so forth for however long it is. And you know, the master... Um, the master probably heard gossip from the servants. And the servants are probably saying something like, why is he still waiting for him? His son just stole half of his stuff. His stuff. Why are you bothering with him? Why do you even care about him? Why don't you go and do what you want to do. Do the other things. Do the things of running your house. Do your business. Whatever that is. And you know what the master probably is saying? I'm waiting for my son because that is now my business. Nothing else. And you know, he's saying, this fatty calf I have here, don't use it. I know you can use it for other things. You'd probably come and ask me, hey, can I use it for this? And I'm going to tell you, no. You can't use it because I'm saving it. I'm getting it ready for when my son comes back. And what else is he doing? Oh, there's a robe. I'm waiting for him to come back. So I have his robe ready. It ain't going to sit there. I have it ready for him. So when he comes back, I'm going to give it to him. And there's a ring. When he comes back, I'm going to take that ring. I'm going to give it to him. It's going to be back. It's going to be his. And I bet you that the master didn't just stop there. I bet you every day he was doing laps around his house. Because he wanted to be as fast as he could be. That when his son came back, he can fly over there faster than ever before. Pumping his legs as fast as he can. He probably measured the distance from his house to the horizon and knew i got to cover that space as fast as I can. And you know what else probably happened? He probably had people come to his house. Hey, I got the newest stuff for you. I got the newest pair of running shoes. These are not running shoes. These are my volleyball shoes. Uh, they do help, by the way. Um, I, <laughs> these are the newest pairs of shoes. Buy these, and you will get to your son faster. Sure. Here's my cash. I want those shoes. This master was not going to let anything stand between him and getting to his son as soon as he could, as soon as he saw him. He wasn't going to let anything come in that way. This is a first place love. And so, um, sometimes when we think about the story of the cross and we think about our salvation, I think we think a lot and we can see how big his love is. We can see how wide it is, like an ocean. If you went to the beach and you stared out into the uh, Atlantic and you looked left and you looked right and you looked forward, you couldn't see the end of it. 
And I think sometimes we forget how deep an ocean is. This master, when he saw his son, he ran. He ran as far as, as fast as he could, faster like he never ran before. And he got to him. And it said he was filled with compassion, and he embraced his son. And then he kissed him. And in the Darby version, it said that he covered him with kisses. He lavished on his son. Can you see how deep that love is? It's not just a welcome home. Here's your shirt. Okay? He loved him. He got everything ready. And when he returned, oh, everything went into motion because his son had come back. And it's a love that this world doesn't know. And it's a love that is pure and it doesn't have contamination. And you know, you've been loved with this love. But remember, he first loved us first. You have been loved with this love. And so for us, in our lives, you know what people like to do or the enemy likes to do? He likes to take that first place love to make it a second place love. And then from second place, he's going to go to third place. And from third place, eventually, you're going to end up like the New York Knicks and not make the playoffs. All right? And that's where your love is going to end up. It's a slippery slope. And so my challenge or my question is, are you willing to run harder to get first place? To have first place love? Okay, I have like, I think just enough time. <laughs> um, the last aspect uh, that I'd like to share about first is, we've talked about first from a point of time, we've talked about first from a point of quality. There's also first in a point of authority. So you can think of a first officer, like on a naval ship. A first officer is someone that the crew has to respond to and listen to and obey. A first officer is someone with authority, respect, a command. Right? Minus the captain, right? But that's the first officer. We all know captain is God. So that's the first officer's job. That's the first officer's role. If I had to give you an example about an authoritative kind of love, I'm going to tell you about what happened to me yesterday. So yesterday I was getting ready to come here. And I don't like to be, um, like, too big. Well, I don't like dirty things. Um, and I, didn't, I wanted to be presentable before you guys. Um, and so I decided to use the bathroom, take a shower, make sure my hair wasn't, like, a froey mess somehow, um, and then come before you guys. So I use the bathroom. I take my ring off. Because when I shower, I don't shower with my ring on. I don't like the soap underneath. I don't want to think that it's slippery and might fall off or something like that. So I take my ring off and I place it on my sink counter. And I think to myself, that's probably not a good idea because I've heard a lot of stories about rings going down sinks. <coughs> and so um, <laughs> I'm not going to do the same thing. Okay? So I take the ring and I say, okay, I'm going to put it on my shelf. All right? And this way, there's no drain around it. I'm okay. So I take the ring, I move it to the shelf, or I would have if I didn't hit something on the way and it flew into my toilet. Oh. Now, there's no time to think. 
I'm just going to do the first thing that comes to my mind, and that is, this is my ring that was used on my wedding that signified my testimony to the Lord of my marriage with my wife and my love for her. And so without thought, my hand became an Olympic diver, and I went right into the toilet. Didn't even think about it. Because there was an authority to that love. I wasn't going to count the cost or count the consequences. I was going for that ring. I was moved to do it. And I grabbed that ring up. It didn't go any further. I showered really well. Um, and I'm wearing it right now. Oh, and I did flush before that all happened. So in case you were thinking, yes. There was a flush that preceded all of this happening. I did not tell her, but I'm sure Hannah's going to tell her now. Um, yes. I washed it numerous times. Disinfectant and all. And so, uh, just to be safe. And so, no, no, wait, no questions about the toilet. You can ask me afterwards. Later. So, this love, because uh, I'm running out on time, this love, or love, has an authority to it. It has a motivation, a command. Um, it's high, and it directs you. And this should be the same in our lives. This first love should command us, should direct us. When we know first love as we have been loved, it pushes us on. And it becomes a motivation for things that we're going to do and how we react to things. So if you think about how you can live a life that's pleasing to God, how you can endure, how you can persist, how you can resist evil, how you can have a testimony that doesn't judge or condemn, or compare, and contrast, how you can press on toward the goal. You do it from first love. First love has an authority, and it will direct your life and your actions. And first love will tell us that Jesus is first, and nothing else. First love will grow that life within you. You know, that life of Jesus that's in all of us will grow from this first love. That life, if you remember, has gone through a lot. It went through 40 days and 40 nights. That's some pressing. It went through the cross. That's some enduring. And it made him a serving king, his life here. That is the life that's growing within you. That's the life that can get you towards the goal. That's the life that is the testimony or the lampstand that he's looking for. It's not one that's going to be built on righteousness. It's not going to be built on good deeds or endurance or persistence. Most importantly, it's not going to be man-made or something that we do with our work. But if we look and we go for that first love, and we go for what makes it so sensitive and special, and we open ourselves to it, if we go for the quality and we put it in first place, and if we go for its authority and we let it rule in your heart, then you will have a testimony, a light, that is built on first love, and you will have that lampstand that won't be taken away. It's going to be real. It's going to be uncontaminated. And it's going to be a real representation That's what I have for you. Uh, we're going to pray, um, and then you're going to go off to discussion groups, I think.